Every day, during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street is spending 10 minutes or so with readers and book lovers from around the world, asking them what they're reading and what they'd recommend to anyone with a bit of time on their hands. Today, I'm talking to a genuine legend in the fantasy field, the best-selling creator of Ostnard, Tad Williams, who joins me from somewhere in America. Hello, Tad. <laughs> it, that sounds vague. It sounds like I might actually be driving as we're doing this interview, you know, like, a, like a true American refusing to be pinned down. So, yeah, I mean, I'm in California. I'm in California. We're, we're, we're not technically part of America, as many, many people in other parts of the country will tell you, but that's where I'm. It's it's still kind of a Hunter S. Thompson kind of image, isn't it? Though you know, it's like it, it could be anything. You know, as could, far as you go out in the back forty, pull out the shotgun and start shooting trees any minute now. I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and we're in in the part of the the San Francisco Bay Area that I live in. We're actually quite seemingly rustic, although the you know <laughs> the, the, the towns and cities are just a few minutes drive yeah. away. But but you know, it's it's it does look like you know, the wilderness or something like that, which is quite nice. That illusion is very nice when you're trying to work. So let me ask you, how are you and how are you coping with these strange and genuinely terrible times? Well, as I think we, we talked about at another point, it, it, it's one of the many ways in which we have found ourselves in the science fiction future. And on the one hand, you know, obviously there's all the cool things that are the gadgets, the changes, the technology, the just the sheer new knowledge that's coming in every day. But at the same time, we're also coming up against these things that I don't think most of us had really thought about ahead of time. I mean, we all, you know, think about things like nuclear disaster, if you were raised when I was raised, or occasionally ecological disaster. And nowadays, people worry about climate and things like that. But I don't I think the last time I ever thought about a massive worldwide pandemic was when The Stand first came out, you know, the Stephen King novel. And that was, what, 40 years ago or something. So it's from that point of view, it's there's a part of me and this this is always true. There's a part of me that's always watching things kind of from a historical vantage point or a pseudo historical vantage point because I'm always really interested. But then, of course, there's the part of us that all of us that is just living with whatever is going on. So we're. To be personal for a moment, we're in better shape than a lot of folks. We we have a lot of people living at the house. We've got four college-age kids all with us um, and a lot of animals and stuff. So we're not lacking for company. Um, we do have some people with special um, issues, and so we're having to be extra careful. And yeah. we're like many people, we're absolutely furious when we see people who aren't being that way. <laughs> but – the, the, the thing is, and I, I hesitate to say this because it's one of those things you wonder if it's going to make other people feel bad. It doesn't really change my routine yeah. that much because I've been working from home for, God, since the late 1980s now. So, you know, I'm very much used to just bumbling around the house and working on my book. And, you know, when working day is over, you start thinking about, yeah, we should probably feed the young people and things like that. Yeah. So I'm kind of still in that mode, except we're just going through all the other stuff of staying isolated and, you know, trying to be very conscious of, of the dangers of, of the pandemic itself. Actually, let me ask you, because it occurred to me while, while you were talking, did you ever imagine that so much of, the, of, of a science fictional disaster could be as banal as it is? By which I mean, like, you know, wash your hands, put on a, on a mask, <laughs> stay home. Right. It's kind of banal. It's not spectacular. Yeah, there's, no, yeah. you know, there's no asteroid falling from space. Well, it, it's actually one of the things that I had thought about, but hadn't thought about in particular with the pandemic. But if you like me, if you're a, a history buff um, and you read the history of people who are actually involved in 
what we think of as, as great or important or tragic historical moments, it's usually, as the guys in the military used to say, it's usually long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of extreme terror. And that's kind of, you know, what this has turned out to be like, too. It's every now and then, I mean, you know, you have an encounter with somebody and you suddenly realize this isn't just an argument because we're arguing about why this person isn't wearing a mask. This could literally be something I take home to my daughter that could make her very sick or even kill her. Yeah. So th then you get a moment of like, oh, my God, this isn't banal. You know, this isn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, it's terrifying. Well, I'm not saying that to negate what you're saying, but I'm saying that's so seldom mm. that, that you hit that sharp edge. Most of the time, it is just like any, like people during wartime, you know, it's just like, oh crap, you know, there's no potatoes at the store, so we're going to have to, you know, use turnips for our mash or whatever, you know. It's mm -hmm. always just kind of dealing with day-to-day -day stuff, which is what humans do pretty well. Then with these moments of, you know, <laughs> oh, God, what's going on? So, what is going yeah. on? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, are you finding yourself able to, you know, to read, to work, to, to keep busy and function? Because a lot of people seem kind of distracted by all of this. Well, again, I have a, you know, a built-in advantage in the sense that I've been doing this for a long time. So in, not, <laughs> not sheltering from a pandemic, but I've been working from home for a very long time. My daily routine would look stultifying to most people because, you know, I'm not out fighting <laughs> for fires and I'm not digging ditches and I'm not, I'm wandering around the house like I always do. And then I lie down for a while to think, and then I go to my computer and I work. And so in that sense, it hasn't really bothered me personally that much or changed how I do. There are times, of course, when, because there's new things to worry about, you know, uh, worry is the great enemy of, of creative thinking, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so when you've got too much to, to be concerned about, obviously, it's very hard to clear that away and get back to that sort of pure Zen space where you can think about what you're actually trying to work on. But I have to say, you know, we we're more used to it than many people. So, you know, I don't want to be in a poor me mode about that. But it is, you know, it is occasionally strange and, and difficult. But it's also it's a godsend. It's a yeah, godsend yeah. to have work to do sure. that is, you know, that is stretching me to the limits of what I like to do and what I think I do best. Um, and so in that sense, it's an incredible antidote to a lot of the fear or the 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 boredom or the whatever, you know, and I, I don't know. yeah, I, I can walk away and go, Oh, I have this story in my mind that I can always go back to no matter what else is going on. So that's, that's a real plus. So let me ask you then, what are you reading? And most importantly, is it any good? Well, it's the odd thing with me and this predates the pandemic by a long time is that I, in general, in the last 10 or 15 years, um, I have found it harder and harder to read fiction. Mm -hmm. Not because there's not more and more great fiction around all the time, because there absolutely is. It's just like music. I'm not one of those people who go, oh, it's not as good as it was when I was younger. That's that's rubbish. That's always rubbish. That's just your own personal window on the world and what feels familiar. There's a lot of amazing fiction out there. But as I have gotten farther and farther into this career, I have found it's harder and harder to shut off the fiction writer voice mm -hmm. in my head. Yeah. So whereas when I was younger, up through my sort of mid-20s, my greatest pleasure was reading and was reading fiction largely, although I've always liked other things too. Whereas now, 
I, I don't feel when I'm reading fiction like I'm escaping from my work for the day, like I'm shutting my brain off because there's always a little nagging voice saying, oh, I'll bet it's going to do this here. Or, oh, they should have given that characterization a little <laughs> more. You know what I mean? It's the same thing that happens to people like you and me who work in this field. We go to movies or whatever, and we can't come out of them most of the time and just like yeah. everybody else. There's a part of us that's always the gears are going around. That said... So I, I'm reading a tremendous amount of nonfiction, um, and and with me that's usually goes hand in hand with what I'm working on. But that's okay because it's also the kind of stuff I enjoy. So I read a lot of archaeology, a lot of science. I've got a bunch of books um, right now about Neolithic England and um, the history of English villages and things. One of which was by uh, Mick Aston, who used to do um, uh, Time Team. Okay, he was yeah. the head time team and it's a long study they did of a single English village as far as and so I'm always doing lots of those kinds of things as far as fiction I'm going back and rereading some things but the the new novel that springs to mind right at the moment is uh, Hillary Mantle's The Mirror and the Light um, because I had not read Wolf Hall and then I watched the uh, the the wonderful adaptation the, I think it's a BBC adaptation but it's um, and it was just, it was brilliant, and it made me want to, since I'm interested in that period anyway, the Tudors have always fascinated me. And then I went and read the book, and I was knocked out by just everything about it, her style and her way of, of whether, we'll never know, for instance, if this is an accurate re recreation of the early English Renaissance mind, but it feels genuine and and all fantasy and science fiction writers know you don't necessarily have to be right sometimes there is no right that you can aim to because it's all you know just subjective and thought and we'll never know for certain but if you can make people feel that you are giving them an authentic taste of otherness and uh, hillary mantle has definitely done that in that series so i'm now up to the third book but interestingly enough because i know how it ends <laughs> Which, you know, any, any history uh, lover out there knows that Thomas Cromwell did not survive Henry VIII's reign. <laughs> um, there is a part of me that is starting to – I'm starting to slow down as I get into it because everything else is so depressing at the moment. <laughs> kind of like I, I have come to be so fond of – and again, I have to say Hillary Mantle's version of Thomas Cromwell. Sure, 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 yeah. For those who don't know was Henry VIII's right-hand man – he was a commoner. He was the one who basically arranged Henry to be able to get rid of Anne Boleyn and actually arranged Anne Boleyn to become Henry's wife in the first place. But anyway, um, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, I don't think I want to see him get killed because I've I've loved what <laughs> Hillary Mantle's done with him. So yeah. that's been a, a big one for me. And then, as I said, I'm, I'm rereading things, too. I'm going back to old stuff I haven't seen for a while, including some of the, the early fiction um that i was reading when i was young that i literally haven't gone to since you know 50 years or something yeah. um my early favorites like sturgeon and fritz Leiber and philip k dick and ursula le guin and you know kind of a lot of the people that really informed my writing or at least informed my love of the field back yeah. when i was young and so i'm sure that's a form of comfort reading you know that's a you know me <laughs> saying even if I don't, if even if it feels different now than when I first read these, as it obviously will, since I was probably fourteen or fifteen, 
it's it's something that will be like going back to a familiar place and that feels valuable at this point you know that that sense of uh haven you know of, of something that i can go to and i know what it is and and there's a part of me that gets really upset about that because i feel like it's a form of intellectual cowardice you know <laughs> yeah. that i'm literally comfort reading no uh, I mean, you've got to if you need to well, and that's ultimately, Jonathan, that's ultimately what I come to <laughs> is like, you know, don't don't judge yourself. Art is not a competition anyway. You know, art is whatever it is to you personally. And in this case, it's a valuable if it keeps me from yelling at my kids <laughs> you know, or it keeps me from being upset with, you know, Deb or whatever, you know, then it's it's a good thing. Well, but, I'm, so, I'm yeah. curious just qu quickly. I mean. I remember you talking very fondly about the work of Michael Moorcock. I'm curious yes. if 35 years nearly, I guess, of crafting your own stories changes how you approach these these beloved old old stories that you go back to reread now. Do you see them through a really different filter? Well, that's obviously true. And, and one of the things is that I'm much more likely to kind of differentiate between the, the higher art side of of the genre and the lower art side of the genre although at the time i read them i probably felt equally comfortable sure yeah you know so for instance you know when i read robert e howard and first read the conan books when i was 11 or 12 or whatever and then a year after that read fritz Leiber, who let's be frank is a much much better writer than robert <laughs> e. howard ever was um I didn't really see any distinction between them. I may have felt something about yeah, yeah, yeah. Weiber's wordplay or whatever that I that I responded to. So there is that. You know, you go back with a with a more discerning mind. But the other thing, and this is also kind of embarrassing, is the uh, very often when I go back, especially to Moorcock, who I think I started reading early and then just kept on reading for a long stretch, and still do. I mean, I yeah. go back more to his adult stuff now. Sure, sure, yeah instead of the sword and sorcery and things, but um, like Mother London, which is yeah, a yeah. favorite. Of but uh, when I go back to Moorcock now, I keep seeing these things that I basically copped from, you know, <laughs> when I was first starting out that are, you know, these like ideas that I have, you know, if I thought of them at all in the last decades, I just thought they were something I made up. And then yeah. I go and see something and go, Ooh, I actually stole that one from Mike. <laughs> and it happens more often than, than I'm certainly comfortable with. So, but not, not, not big things, I hasten to say, but you know, I mean, structural approaches to story or something. Ideas, yeah, absolutely, and mm. so um, that's definitely a, a sometimes a, a disheartening prospect. <laughs> to realize how how, how directly influenced you were, almost to the point of theft, as a young writer. Well, that probably brings us around to a a pretty important question. You've mentioned that you're keeping busy, that you're being creative. What do you have in the world, and what do you have coming up? Well, at the moment, I'm actually in kind of an odd situation, again, in part because of the pandemic, which is that um, four or five years ago, I made a, a complicated decision for boring reasons I won't go through on, on this particular conversation, but to go back and do another series of books set in the Ostenard world of Dragonbone Chair, et cetera, et cetera. And this turned out to be kind of a big undertaking because... Um, I quickly realized that a lot, I had a lot of readers out there who knew the material better than I did. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know how much time you spend reading your old work, but it ain't, <laughs> you know. 
So I, I literally had not read those books since they were published because, yeah. you know, in the last three or four months, you usually have to read the thing five times, you know, and proofs and whatever. So first of all, I had to find people who knew the material like the way that I used to know Tolkien when I was sure. young and could yeah. tell me, you can't use that character, Tad. You killed that guy <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah. Second volume of the first trilogy. But then because I'm now on the third volume of this trilogy, the first one was The Witchwood Crown, the second one was Empire of Grass, and I'm writing the third and final volume, um, Navigator's Children, right now. But because it's very long, again, not surprising for these kind of things, at least for me, um, the my publishers have pushed it back because of the pandemic and the resulting confusion and the idea that, you know, if this book is twelve or 1,300 pages in manuscript, it's going to take a lot of work to prep it. So because of that, I dropped it in the last hundred pages of the first draft and have started a short novel that's also part of this project as well, which I was going to do afterward. So, But instead, I kind of dropped this massive thing to one side and went and picked up this much smaller book, which unfortunately also required huge amounts of research <laughs> in my own work, which is not my favorite thing to do um, because it's either confusing or, or daunting or sometimes just irritating. <laughs> So I'm working on both of those. Um, I'm, I put in for a couple of more novels where I may actually do some other work with old stuff. I've been very opposed to the idea. I've yeah. been almost snobby about it. Like I will never, ever go back to something that I wrote before. And, but I didn't, you know, the internet introduced me to a lot of people who really want to see more of these things. I'm sure most yeah. writers with any kind of length of career have had sure, similar experiences. Yeah. But it also kind of made it clear to me that I had to find a way to do it differently rather than just sort of reiterate what I'd done before with a few changes. Sure. I had to find new things to excite myself because every book has to be exciting or you don't want to write it and you won't write it well. Um, and that actually has made me realize, no, I do still have things to say because these ideas grabbed me in the first place, even if it was 30 or something years ago yeah. for a reason. Yeah. You know, there were four things here that really fascinated me and I haven't necessarily explored them. So that's I'm, I'm this to say I'm actually not certain what I'm going to be doing after I finish these two projects. I've got some very unrelated things I want to do as well. I, I always, as I'm sure, again, you do, too. <laughs> I always have way more things I'd like to do than I actually have time to, to manage. It's not a bad way to be if you possibly can be. It's not. But when you once you get to be, you know, uh, older um, <laughs> using that that adjective carefully once you get older than you were um <laughs> you also realize you know i don't know how many years yeah. of, cho of choices that i have left to make sure. either i mean i'm hoping that i've got another good 20 years of writing and i frankly sure. i feel good i'm in a good health um i'm not that old but I'm definitely at the point realizing, you know, maybe so maybe I'll write 10 more books in my life. I've yeah. already written like 30, right? Maybe yeah. I'll write 10 or 15 more books, depending on how long they yeah. are. Yeah. That's now becoming a, you know, not a, <laughs> it's a, literally a finite number, but it's a, it's a set of choices. And I have to think about what would I feel horrible if I didn't get to do, yeah. you know? So that's all part of the factor now as well. Yeah. Well, for the moment, I have to say, Tad Williams, it has been a joy and a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I genuinely appreciate it. Uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you too, Jonathan, and uh, I hope we get to do it again sometime. And I hope this whole bloody pandemic 
is is done and we can all start seeing each other in conventions and stuff like that again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you.